So Steve, it's been about a year now since uh, we've been working from home at, at Freddie Mac and social distancing. Um, and I'm certainly wondering uh, when life might start to approach normal again. I'm sure you are as well. That's for sure. And, um, you know, I think with vaccines and distribution, with more schools starting to welcome students back in person and 2020 kind of moving into the rearview mirror, I, I have some hope uh, that we'll get back to normal, but I'm um, not quite there yet. But, you know, and so it is, it is good to have a bit of hope, but um, curious though, what are the lingering impacts of, of 2020 uh, on the housing market this year on apartments and, and even just, you know, fixtures of downtowns, offices, hotels and retail, as we just think a little bit broader than the multifamily segment. Yeah. I mean, certainly as we talk about multifamily and housing, um, you know, that, that kind of adjacent industry to us in commercial real estate are definitely impacted by the pandemic. Um, today we're fortunate and, uh, we were able to talk about, uh, the broader context of the commercial real estate market. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Corey Aber. And I'm Steve Guggenmoss. Today on the show, we're going to look back at some of the final numbers from 2020 in the commercial real estate market and give some considerations as to the effects that also stretch into 2021. Some of the trends that we're leading into 2020 uh, are accelerated and some are changing course. Today, we have Jeff Berenbaum, Director at City. To discuss these trends and not just focus on the housing market, but consider apartment performance in the context of the broader commercial real estate market. All right. And I'm really looking uh, looking forward to getting into the uh, conversation with you, Jeff. Uh, and, and definitely thank you so much for being here. But but wanna, like, let's do a, just a quick survey of your work and what you focus on. Sure. Uh, good afternoon, Corey and Steve. I'd like to thank you both for having me on with you today. I'm co-head of the CMBS research effort at Citigroup. We focus on securitized lending and investments across the commercial real estate spectrum from stabilized multifamily properties to sectors such as retail that have been evolving the past few years. We are an independent research group and publish on securitized mortgage opportunities and risks from the perspective of an institutional investor. Before joining Citi, which was quite a while ago, I worked on the buy side at a mortgage portfolio management shop, but I actually got my start in the mortgage-backed securities industry way back at Freddie Mac. All right. So a little bit of a blast from the past, maybe with you being on the show today. So as we get into questions, I guess maybe worth calling out just a little bit. Steve, this is now the second time, I think, in our history where you're not just going to be the co-host, but you will be... Uh, you'll be part guest as well. Um, so I want to you know, talk with both of you, uh, you know, since you both watch market fundamentals in the lending markets uh, and, and have done so for a long time. You know, 2020, was been, uh, 2020 has been unique, right? So how different is it as you look back on that year and consider where we're going from here? So maybe, Steve, why don't you start with the multifamily segment and then we'll, we'll get to you, Jeff. Yeah, that sounds good. And I think, um, you know, kind of ground us in multifamily, which, which I think uh, lots, of, uh, lots of us and our listeners are, are embedded in all the time. And then uh, it'll be great to expand out from there. And, uh, you know, um, our outlook just recently came out um, earlier in the year. And uh, as, as we looked at that, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, things have just been a continuation of, for, for years. Uh, the strength of the multifamily market has been incredible, um, basically coming out of the great financial crisis. 
and and it's been nearly a, a decade of growth. And and rental growth rates have been uh, above the pace of inflation, um, and and uh, occupancies have remained very very high, and and it's been tight markets. And, uh, and that's what's kind of led us into where we are right now. And then 2020 kind of switched things up in a, in a very major way. And, and I think that uh, the pandemic and, and then the, the fallout of that, and especially as, as it relates to the multifamily market, um, we get concerned about labor markets. And, and with labor markets getting shocked and especially folks that are in retail and leisure and hospitality, you know, it was identified that those households were really amongst those that were, that were hit hardest. And that was, that was pretty obvious. And, uh, and in our, in our first looks, we really felt like the, um, the effects could be uh, really meaningful and, uh, and would completely shift our forecasts. And so it, it, it definitely makes us look at things in a whole new way. And, uh, and I think that the expectations were for, you know, a, a, a very difficult year um, at, uh, as, as things got started. And as things moved on through 2020, um, the, the, uh, the resilience in the multifamily market kind of started to show through. And, uh, and, you know, there were new measures like the rent payment tracker from the NMHC, which has been a great resource to see that people have continued to make payments. Um, and then, you know, we've been able to track uh, um, rental performance and whether it's by as class A, class B, class C type uh, buildings or in urban and suburban, which there's been a shift or, or, you know, any number of other cuts. And I think that, as I said before, our concern up front was, uh, um, was that uh, the, the effects would 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 be in class C and in folks that, that were losing their jobs. And, you know, what came out relatively early was that class A was being hit relatively hard um, and certainly urban areas. And so that is something that we've uh, continued to track and certainly is a part of, you know, as we look into 2021, some of the things that kind of um, will be, you know, amongst, amongst the things that affect us this, you know, carried into this year. Um, but I think that uh, as we think about the overall market, you know, we we definitely see that the Class C and more affordable products benefited from the stimulus and, and another part of our um, of our research uh, that was in the outlook looked at the, the effects of somebody who potentially you know would have lost their job completely or lost their job for three months. And it's remarkable that person that would have lost their job for three months in the beginning of June um, basically gets their full income. And, uh, and I think that that's certainly been a, a, a driver of the strength in the multifamily market. And then I think, uh, you know, somebody that loses the job for the full year gets back nearly um, 70% of their income. So that's a piece of, of what's contributed to where we are kind of in multifamily. Um, and certainly people, as I said, with the rent payment tracker, we're able to see that people are continuing to pay rents. And I think that people are prioritizing rents and, and that's been important for our space. Um, and that's not something that you would see in other property types and, and uh, quite the same way. And so maybe that's a good transition, Jeff, into sort of what you're seeing in the broader market. Sure. Uh, COVID did indeed accelerate some of the pre-pandemic secular trends, such as physical to online shopping. But it also appended others, as you mentioned. We have seen disruptions in commercial real estate before, such as during the financial crisis of a decade ago, which impacted lending markets, 
but fundamentals at that time were not nearly impaired to the degree of the currently ongoing pandemic situation. Consider hotels, which face an uphill battle towards full RevPAR recovery. Business-oriented and luxury were strong pre-pandemic segments, while leisure and limited service had been weaker. A hotel's group booking versus transient breakdown was a metric to follow indicating which properties rely more on business travel. We had been more constructive on the higher-end hotels with a larger share of non-room revenues, such as F&B or food and beverage, and like to see a heavy conference schedule near a hotel's location. But in the meantime, the growing popularity of Airbnb and other non-traditional players were adding shadow inventory, bringing competitive challenges to the economy and mid-scale end of the spectrum not too dissimilar from the way e-commerce was taking share from bricks and mortar retail. Hotels catering to business travelers appeared less vulnerable. Let's fast forward to today, and it's limited service outperforming the luxury end by a wide margin. Overall RevPAR, or revenue per available room, is down 50% from a year ago, though that's up from the minus 80% at the trough. ADRs, or average daily room rate, is off by 28% from year-ago levels. But looking across segments, economy rev par is lower by just 12% compared to down 70% at the high end. Travel over the holidays was relatively robust, despite public officials asking people to refrain from taking unnecessary trips. In the meantime, business travel and conference schedules remain on ice. Several upscale hotels in New York have permanently shuttered, like the Hilton Times Square, and operators are looking for alternative revenue streams, like setting up contracts with the city to house the homeless or becoming self-quarantine locations. These properties really need to get back to fully booked restaurants, buzzing bars, and banquet events to meet their expenses and debt obligations. Now, in the office sector, demand weakened through 2020. The pandemic has has upended our view of the desirability of urban over suburban locations to some degree. Many employers really felt real estate had become an integral component in their corporate branding, with the location, look, and feel of the workspace as a way to attract and retain talent and send the correct message to clients. Employees were encouraged to engage more frequently in common spaces to enhance creativity and efficiency. Square footage per employee continued contracting. Some companies even had no assigned seating, with employees sitting with their laptops near colleagues who they would collaborate with on any, on any particular day. At that time, flexible office and co-working concepts were seeing rapid growth. WeWork stated that they were the largest real estate tenant in New York City and Washington, D.C. at one point. Now, employers are rationalizing space requirements as the flexible work arrangements evolved through the pandemic. More companies remained more efficient than anticipated as staff worked remotely and virtual meetings became the norm. Still, many observers suggest that the culture and relationship building will suffer the longer there's no centralized location for employees and customers to gather at. It's hard to know where this equilibrium will land between employers downsizing space needs versus those who are leasing more space to de-densify employees. But the office availability and vacancy rates did each spike in 2020, 
reaching 56% and 11% nationally. Even more ominous, net absorption for both directly offered space and sublet space turned negative during the year. Overall leasing activity reached its lowest level in 10 years. Now in retail, weakening metrics generally accelerated this past year. E-commerce is making deeper inroads with stay-at-home shoppers as the pandemic wears on. Yet much of the goods ordered online are taking share from non-essential tenants, such as apparel and footwear stores. Failures of, of such retailers, as well as the department stores, contribute to the much-discussed troubles facing malls. But essential tenants, such as grocery stores and pharmacies, have fared better during the pandemic. These tenants are mainstays at retail formats like neighborhood centers and strip centers, which have seen availability rates improve by 5 to 11% over the past five years. Shoppers find these locations easy to park near the door to get in and out quickly. Many have also offered curbside pickup options for online orders. Yet all retail formats saw availability rates rise this past year. Increases range from 1% on general retail to 2.4% at malls. Even so, the neighborhood and strip center owners pushed market rents slightly higher, while mall, while mall market rents dipped by half a percent. The ongoing woes of the department stores are well known, but uh, pre-pandemic mall owners were strategically upgrading their food and entertainment tenants, such as movie theaters and Dave and & Buster's, to internet-proof their properties and bolster foot traffic. But now that the pandemic has upended these virus-unfriendly offerings, more malls may be destined for repurposing. Finally, turning to industrial, which in many ways is the mirror image of retail, we saw demand strengthen over the past year. The accelerating pace of e-commerce is increasing the need for warehouse and logistics properties to store and ship goods. Yet functionality and location were key property attributes pre-pandemic and remain important considerations. Online retailers have different needs compared to traditional industrial space users, especially with a greater focus on last mile deliveries. For example, some developers only build properties with clear heights of 30 feet, though clear heights of 40 feet may become more predominant to fit the Amazon multi-mezzanine level style formats with a high reliance on automation. Regardless of potential obsolescence, proximity to large urban centers is a major mitigating factor. The Meadowlands outside of New York City is the closest last mile industrial zone for the New York, New Jersey area. This is a market that companies want to be able to get in and out of several times a day and will pay a premium to be there. Most of the Meadowlands industrial product is older, but the area is in such high demand and completely leased up that there's no need for landlords to modernize. Aside from a traditional industrial, data centers and cold storage are two related niche segments that are also desirable in the ongoing pandemic. Jeff, that's a really great uh, summary of, of the commercial real estate market and, and uh, definitely full of, of some some darker aspects, but also uh, the industrial part. Uh, really interesting. So um, I do want to get into um, some of the, you know, what you're seeing at, at some of the, the local level. Um, 
as well. And you talked about the Meadowlands and the industrial there. But so are you seeing shifts, though, um, in where people are living in, in, and how's that playing out in, in some of the data that you're looking at? Yeah, sure. You know, employment and, and population growth certainly drive demand for commercial real estate. Ongoing domestic migration trends persisted and, and probably picked up a bit in the past year as people continued to move out of expensive states such as California and New York to, to more affordable locations, primarily in the South or West regions. According to a, a North American moving services report that we looked at, people are fleeing California for Texas and of all places, Idaho. Arizona and North Carolina are also top destinations. Northeastern states make up four out of the seven states with the most outbound moves. The Northeast has actually seen a net population decline over the past five years, while the Southwest and Southeast have, have grown by about six and a half and four percent respectively. Now, the, we've seen developers and lenders uh, chasing these moving populations, particularly to satisfy the demands for e-commerce and same-day delivery. Not only has lending on industrial properties increased, but uh, though, uh, but lending on industrial in regions with population growth is trending upward. The industrial lending share in the Southeast increased to 35% since April, up from an average of just 6% uh, from January 2016 through March 2020. Office was the only other major property type to see an increase in lending share across regions since April. Uh, we also looked at winners and losers across property types in, in various metros. Hotels in larger metros have seen the most severe contractions. Conference cities such as Chicago, Boston, San Francisco, and New York had the weakest performance with RevPAR lower by 70 to 80% from a year ago. Fly to destinations such as Hawaii also remain in distress with occupancy down 50 to 60%. But on the flip side, hotels in several beach towns in the Southeast finished 2020 in better shape given their accessibility by car. Rev Park contraction at Virginia Beach, Myrtle Beach, and Daytona Beach hotels is in the low 20% area with occupancy lower by just 10% or less. Myrtle Beach hotel owners actually increased their ADRs by 1% from a year ago. In offices, technology firms in and around San Fran have dealt a blow to the demand landscape in that region. Leasing activity fell two-thirds in 2020 as the availability rates increased by over 18%. Though landlords have listed space at gross rents 2.2% above year-ago levels, sublease rents are down more than 11% as tenants are looking to attract other employees, employers to relieve themselves of some of the rent burden. Surprisingly, Austin office demand was also weak which we find counter to the narrative of employees moving to this less expensive location. While the city may be seeing a population uptick, the office availability rate increased by over 18% and leasing activity declined by nearly 60%. Still, some smaller office markets fared better. Employees, employers have, leased, have fewer leasing options in those locations and may prefer holding onto existing space as they determine space requirements going forward. Richmond, Birmingham, and Louisville saw low single-digit availability rate increases in 2020 and near just 20% drop-offs in leasing activity. For industrial, the main risk to monitor is overbuilding. Delivery, deliveries have steadily increased over the past 10 years, reaching nearly 2% of percentage 
as a percentage of stock in 2020, another nearly 2% is under construction. Both Memphis and Nashville are seeing a significant pickup industrial supply, and Pennsylvania and Texas each have three metro markets to monitor. There's a lot of interconnected aspects with, with everything you've talked about in, in housing, except perhaps like travel to Myrtle Beach. Uh, but but for the rest of it, so Steve, are you seeing similar similar trends on the housing side? Is there a Boise uh, boom in housing as well as uh, uh, what, what Jeff was seeing? Yeah, and I think um, pick, picking up from from what Jeff was saying early on, there was that uh, you know the leisure and hospitality markets were especially hit hard, and other commercial real estate um, types, property types, and and that's certainly the case uh, as as he listed off those markets. You know, it was really the typical of the of those um, gateway markets where you know New York, um, Boston, Chicago, Bay Area. Um, and uh, and seeing weakness there, and that is certainly when we look back on the year uh, in the past, uh, we we see weakness in the uh, in the multifamily market there as well. And uh, you know, I think it's interesting. We often then do the comparison um, of you know of households and and renter households versus owner household, and and the comparison of of those markets. And uh, you know the the the. The pandemic effect on on um, some markets and and the Boise or, or those markets certainly has has benefited and but but the overall housing market has benefited on the single family side where you know rates came in so much there was a lot of uncertainty at the beginning of the pandemic there was an inability to I, I think um, get all the due diligence done to get through to property refinancing or, or sales. Um, that quickly ended the effect of low rates, drove demand for for mortgages, and drove demand for for housing. And it's been remarkable to see what's happened um, in the single family market. And uh, I think house prices, depending on what measure you use, um, almost all of them are either at a record high or above it. I think that uh, inventories are 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 at near record lows on the single family side, and certainly. Um, the home ownership rate um, came in a fair or um, went up a fair amount, and so rentership came in a little bit. And so I think that, but the, but the overlap in markets is is pretty remarkable between the two. And I think that as we consider, you know, kind of where that leaves us right now, um, is the there's a there's a question as to how sustained is that, and uh, and that drive down in interest rates certainly drove some demand, and and rates have moved up a fair amount just in the in the weeks leading up to our recording today, and uh, and that will change affordability on the single family side, and and then you know with the increase in prices going up you know n- nearly um, approaching double digits, um, that makes that down payment part of the affordability a little bit different. So where single family affordability was remarkably strong in 2020 for those with the wherewithal to buy, um, uh, the trends in the future may not look um, quite the same way. And so that plays into kind of some of the, what we would see on, on you know, the, 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 the dynamics between the single family and the multifamily market. And then I think that we have to remember what, what the situation was Going into the pandemic, and that you know we often considered uh, that that the the country overall was kind of underhoused, right? Supply had not kept up with uh, with demand for for a decade, um, 
and and that led to tight tight multifamily markets, tight single family markets, and and rents and prices going up in general. The pan- the pandemic kind of has taken the attention away from that for a while, um, but I think that as we start to get to the other side, um, we're going to notice uh, those issues again, and that certainly um, brings us back to something that we talk a fair amount about, and that is um, affordability. and uh, And I think that many households have been hit very hard um, in terms of affordability, and to, whether it's uh, uh, job loss or you know other things kind of moving out over the range of affordable. So I think that that um, while we're looking at similar markets, we're looking at slightly different things. Yeah. So so one aspect of of 2020 with the really low rates um, in the single family market and the multifamily market, uh, one would assume a big year for refis, uh, but. But what happened on the acquisition side? On the multifamily side, um, uh, you know, as I talked about, just in terms of like overall property fundamentals, there was concern at the beginning of the year, and uh, and similarly, uh, it would the the number of transactions dropped uh, dropped meaningfully in terms of sales markets. Um, but that did, you know, when it, when it was off nearly 70% early in the year, it later ended up, um, you know, recovering some of that and the market, you know, maybe down 40%, I think overall in terms of actual sales volume, but, uh, property pricing held up. And, uh, and as we talked about at the beginning, the year end numbers are in and overall, uh, 8.3%, uh, price appreciation for multifamily in the year. And that uh, certainly um, well ahead of inflation and certainly in a time where cash flows are a little bit in question, that that is remarkable. And I think that speaks to a little bit what I talked about before in terms of there is knowledge that there's a need for housing um, and that uh, um, this is uh, in this um, asset class, uh, there will continue to be a need for, for rental housing. And, uh, and then I think that uh, the low rates played into it. And, uh, and anytime we look at valuation, you look at uh, cap rate spreads and, uh, and whether you're considering um, the, the, you know, the lows of the 10-year treasury relative to the cap rate in the range of you know, 5.1% or as they've ticked up a little bit, you're still either in the th- high 300s or, or above 400. And the long run spread is you know, well inside of that. It could be you know, in the range of 300 to 325 basis points if you go back to 2000. If you go back... Um, into the 60s and 70s and take the average that far back, the, the spreads go 100 basis points wider than that. And obviously, the, uh, the, I think that the multifamily market is dramatically more mature than it was at that time. And I think people are comfortable with that, with um, you know, understanding the cash flows and understanding the market. And so I think that's held the values up a fair amount. And I think that also um, bodes well for, for views relative to um, other asset types. But uh, um, Jeff, maybe, maybe that's a, a good time to, I guess, think about w- what happened with property prices uh, in the other commercial real estate types. Yeah, I, I mean, I would I would agree with largely with you, Steve. Uh, but on the on the ca- on the other commercial sectors, despite the the fundamentals uncertainty, cap rates did remain fairly stable. Implied cap rates from REIT valuations at the time we published our outlook were four point three percent for industrial. Six and a half percent for urban office, seven point one percent for shopping centers, and seven point eight percent for suburban office. For 2020, industrial outperformed with a full year eleven point eight percent total return, 
while just shy of its five-year average, the sector handily beat the 1.6% all-property total return. But negative appreciation did drag the other sector's returns lower. Hotel also experienced a negative income return as the limited revenue that the hotels brought in could not offset expenses in many cases. Yet the property sectors did appear to be gaining momentum entering 2021. Total returns turned either more positive or less negative in the fourth quarter, except for retail. Still, it will take, we think it's going to take some time to get a better sense on where property valuations are, which we expect as transaction volume picks up. Property transactions reached just 400 billion in 2020, down 32% year over year. Still, we, we had been expecting a nearly 50% decline, but the fourth quarter ended up being the busiest three-month period of the year, nearly doubling third quarter activity and tripling the second quarter amount. Hotel and retail transactions dropped 68 and 43% respectively, with hotel volumes remaining very light right through the fourth quarter. Office sales volumes were, were down 40% just behind retail, Though industrial experienced 16% volume decrease, the in-favor sector was the only one to beat its five-year average. Corey, back to you. So what was driving the, the uh, just strong fourth quarter in, in those cases where you saw that? I believe it was the, uh, the expectation of the vaccine rolling out and you know, just more of the economy starting to, to reopen. Um, I, I think that the uncertainty uh, surrounding fun- fundamentals earlier in the year really drove bid-ask prices dramatically wide. And I think as uh, you know, more certainty was playing into the, into the market of, of when reopening might occur, although it's still a bit uncertain, you know, bid-ask probably narrowed a bit. Got it. Got it. All right. So I think one more topic um, looking backwards, and then, then we should look ahead. Um, so let's talk about loan performance uh, in in the sector. So Steve, let's let's start with multifamily. Sure, and um, you know I think that uh, uh, the, the given everything that's happened in the market, uh, you know our, our performance has been remarkably good over the long, long haul. And uh, and there was concern um, that this year we would face new stresses, um, but. You know, as we look back, we largely say that uh, credit performance uh, in our book of business has largely been idiosyncratic. There's been, you know, very low uh, uh, delinquency and default numbers, and and to the point that uh, you know, over the long, long history of, of data that we put together going back to the mid 1990s, you know, you, we've got an overall, you know, uh, probable, you know, the, um, expected loss of, of just six basis points. So, you know. Very much less than than one percent, and and uh, very very uh, low numbers. For example, you know, eighty loans um, went into foreclosure over over that whole time period, and uh, and a comparable number in 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 the broader securitized market for multifamily is is thirty two hundred, I think, loans. So so we often look a fair amount different, and uh, and and we still continue to to have very good performance. And, uh, and so the year hasn't turned into a big, uh, run up in delinquencies. Those numbers have moved just a little bit. Um, but, uh, probably the more notable thing that we did was, was create a forbearance program. And, uh, and this goes together, 
um, with our mission and it goes together with, um, you know, managing the loan portfolio. And so this was uh, giving uh, our borrowers the chance to take forbearance and, and not make payments. Uh, and that would then give the renters an ability to um, not make payments as well and not have to fear eviction. And so um, with that, we, we did have, um, a, as intended, uh, over a thousand um, loans took forbearance and uh and the split was uh was mixed uh it, it's it's not a huge percent of our portfolio overall it's uh it's about 4.5 percent of the of the securitized um population by loan count and uh, and lower than that uh when you consider balance um and uh and that's because it's it's largely small balance loans which is about 75 percent of those loans and then uh, as we look at how those loans have performed over the year, nearly 80% of those are back to fully performing. They've either fully repaid or they're paying according to their plan, which is um, covering their payment in addition to uh, any back payments. So um, there was a forbearance 2.0 released um, program, um, and this is considering uh, all of those factors. So the performance in multifamily in our space has, has remained good. Um, and so it's, it's something that we obviously, as a lender, we continue to watch, um, but we feel like the forbearance program um, worked as intended. So Jeff, what about in, uh, in the other commercial real estate uh, markets? Yeah, I would say we need a second Y-axis from what Steve was just talking about. The COVID-19 crisis struck a direct blow on commercial real estate, causing an immediate impact on property cash flows and mortgage delinquency. Delinquency rates for securitized loans have jumped to over 8% since the pandemic started. In contrast, the financial crisis a decade ago started out in subprime mortgages and took some time to reverberate onto commercial properties. Securitized delinquency jumped to just 3.5% at the onset of the financial crisis, but over time climbed to higher than 9%. Across sectors, hotel is currently 23% delinquent and retail just under 13%. Office and industrial remain in the low single digits. Delinquency rates have actually dropped over the past several months, primarily as borrowers execute forbearance and modification agreements. We do expect many hotels to bounce back as travel returns post-pandemic, but many retail properties, on the other hand, may see redevelopment as the best way forward. Owners may repurpose empty department stores into warehousing space to meet last mile delivery demand. Quite a few retail conversions are already in the works. Fresh examples include Epic Games' conversion of Cary Town Center in Cary, North Carolina into its office campus headquarters and Urban Edge's potential redevelopment of Sunrise Mall in Massapequa, New York to industrial space. Santa Monica Place's owner is planning a partial redevelopment into office space, while the Westside Pavilion in West LA made headlines some time ago when that regional mall announced a redevelopment into office space with Google as a key tenant. You know, it makes me wonder, uh, you know, with the housing shortage we have and, and uh, land cost being one aspect that uh, goes into making it difficult, are we going to see a lot of conversions of, of uh, these spaces to housing in some form? Corey, one anecdote 
that I could highlight that that is happening is in uh, is in um, Hartford. We've seen office building space taken uh, out of commission, out of use, and and converted into multi. So you know, while that trend of of uh, millennials wanting to live downtown in urban locations may have driven that transformation uh, prior to the uh, pandemic. We'll have to see if that continues post pandemic. If that urban, you know, core uh, city living is still uh, still a thing for the millennials. So we'll watch this uh, Hartford example, and it will be the trendsetter for the nation. So put put Hartford on top. Um, all right. So, so um, looking ahead, may, maybe uh, more seriously at 2021, um, you know, wh- what do you see uh, see ahead of us as, as market conditions uh, play out over time? Steve, you want to start with that one? Sure. And and I think that you know I'll pick up a little bit from um, um, the discussion of, of stress in the market and and property prices. And uh, you know, the, as we said, the loans are performing pretty well at this point, and. Uh, and property prices have been performing pretty well. I, I'd say an, another thing to look at is just the the number of distressed sales um, and the percent of in, in the market. And I think that the you know the numbers in multifamily as a whole um, in, in the Great Financial Crisis got up to I think about thirty percent of sales were distressed sales. And I think in the last year, I think that number was m- more like in the two percent range in, in the market overall. And so to to me. Um, that, you know, uh, you'll often hear people saying, you know, you can't compare two recessions. Every recession is different. So, I mean, that, that's one way where these are, are very clearly different. And so, and, and that will kind of, um, feed into, uh, you know, if there's a lack of distressed sales, then I think those property prices continue to hang in there. And one thing that's, you know, very relevant to us is, it, you know, if property prices continue to hang in there, then that suggests that there's a, a fair amount of activity in, in lending markets and whether it's refi or acquisition. And so um, another part of our outlook is, as we forecasted at the time, uh, a market size of about $340 billion, um, in 2021. And, uh, and that is smaller than the peak, but it's certainly a meaningful growth from, from what we forecast, which the, the, this is a number that's not complete on, uh, on 2020, but uh, in, somewhere in the range of, of uh, was in the range of 289, uh, 289 billion to maybe something above 300 billion uh, is the number for 2020 as, as the dust settles there. And so a growth up to 340 billion. And, uh, and we think that's driven by certainly um, uh, a continued interest in multifamily that's reflected in, in those property prices. And, and I'll also just note that as we look across all the markets um, in the past, you know, Real Capital Analytics has you know, multiple, multiple different price indices based on geography and other factors. Uh, I think that they have about 75 of them for the, that cover multifamily and there's, there's overlap, but uh over two thirds of them were positive in um, in 2020, and and if that trend continues, then you can see why um, there's a lot of discussion of the of the exposure that, that there is in, in the gateway markets. But then you can imagine that if you know the, the vast majority of markets are still growing and there continues to be demand, and so uh, so I think that continues uh, into into this year where there will be a growing debt market and uh, and. Uh, you know, certainly it doesn't hurt that rates have been so low and, and they are, you know, trending up, but they still remain uh, lower than they were a year ago. So when you have the combination of, of a number of buildings where NOI is up a little bit, 
um, uh, certainly since the last refinance or sale. And then you have rates relatively low. Um, you're going to have a fair amount of demand for debt. So as I look forward, I, I see a growing debt market and uh, um, amongst other things. What about you, Jeff? Yeah, I mean, we would agree. Um, we expect transactions and acquisition financing demand will grow as expectations for improving fundamentals pick up. Investor preference for industrial and multifamily will keep lending shares high for those two sectors. Industrial properties should outperform at an over 6% total return in 2021, continuing the sector's winning streak, while office will be near flat. Retail may post a second consecutive negative return at minus 4%, albeit that would be better than the minus 7.5% in 2020. Now, the MBA in its latest revision forecast combined commercial real estate and multifamily mortgage debt originations to increase by 10% in 2021 to over 480 billion compared to a near 30% drop in 2020. We expect securitized CRE debt to rise over 5% to 235 billion based on the forecast we had in our outlook. While issuance will rebound, the property mix will continue to reflect lender caution that was on display as post-COVID originations began to emerge in 2020. Now, as far as the property sectors go, a full RevPAR recovery across hotel segments may not happen before 2024. But depending on, upon the success of vaccination effectiveness, we could see tremendous pent-up demand play out in the travel and leisure sectors. Drive-to resorts and leisure-oriented properties are already benefiting from increased demand, particularly in the Sun Belt. Core urban markets such as New York and San Francisco will see a slower recovery. Business travel, group travel, and international tourism that drive demand in these markets may be the last to recover. Office has not yet seen the full brunt of the pandemic, as there have been very few COVID-driven office delinquencies so far. Most corporate tenants are paying rent, even as many of their employees may still be working remotely. But employers are reassessing their space needs, and some may look to terminate leases early if they can exercise early termination options. Tenants that are unable to terminate early may express new space demands when their leases roll. Dense cities and CBD areas might be especially prone to a post-pandemic office exodus. Some tenants will be moving to a more permanent remote working arrangement, while other firms may be looking for suburban locations in addition to, or potentially in lieu of, existing CBD locations. We expect further evolution in the retail space. We'll see if the food and entertainment concepts can generate the hoped-for foot traffic when capacity constraints are lifted. Yet, we will see further repurposing, as we discussed earlier. One segment we'll be watching is grocery. Though e-commerce has taken material share from apparel, footwear, and other mall-based tenants, online grocery penetration remains relatively low. We expect suburban locations may be less sensitive than core urban ones to any growth in online grocery share. And lastly, industrial will remain an in-favor asset class with supply trying to catch up with the demand. All right, Jeff, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. And, and Steve, thanks for uh, for playing the guest for a little while. 
Um, it was a great discussion and, and great to learn more about some of the other aspects of commercial real estate uh, and, and how that's doing. Uh, certainly not something I think about regularly. So uh, I think I will be thinking that way a lot more now. So uh, again, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you'd like to learn more, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.